You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. If you guys weren't here on Sunday, Sunday was was epic. We were, we were up here talking about real stuff. I, I thought it was going to be like this lighthearted thing, and I don't know why the Holy Spirit was just in the room. It got in us in a different direction. It was like, it got real. I had a lot of people come to me afterwards and say, like, well, we weren't expecting that. And uh, one of the things we talked about was Jacob in this pivotal turning point moment in his life, chapter 35 of Genesis, where uh, earlier in the book, Jacob is, has this turning point moment And in 35, this is what came up on Sunday. 35 is a moment where God brings him back to the place where he came face to face. God brings Jacob back to this place called Bethel, this place that they rename in that moment Peniel, which means wrestled with God. And to really understand that story, this really amazing moment where God is showing us what it looks like to anchor our lives in moments of revelation, where he calls Jacob, he says, Jacob, I want you to go back to Bethel. Go back to Bethel and build an altar. Go back and remember. Remember what it felt like to be in your body when I showed up and you were set free. For us to really, really understand that moment, we actually have to go a little bit earlier in the book of Genesis in 27. In chapter 27, we see, we see Jacob at this turning point in his life. And there's a reason why seven chapters later, Jacob's got to wrestle with God. There's a reason that Jacob's got some stuff to work out because we don't know it, but Jacob is actually wrestling with a lie about who he is. Jacob is wrestling with shame. That the word Jacob, he got that name because as his brother Esau was coming out, he snatched him back and he was born first. Well, his body was born partially first. And they gave him the name Jacob, which means supplanter or usurper. And so this thing was spoken over Jacob's life from birth that you're a manipulator, Jacob. That that for you to step into what God's calling you to be, for you to step into who you are, you've got to manipulate people. And it's really easy for me to think that Jacob just had a character issue. But there's this really interesting moment in 27 where we see that actually Jacob, he didn't invent these strategies these strategies were modeled for him. So in chapter 27, there's this moment where his his mom, Jacob's mom, Rebecca, and his dad, Isaac, are getting old, probably really old, because Jacob is 40. And, uh, And they were old when they had him. And Rebecca hears Esau and Isaac in the other room talking. And he hears Isaac tell Esau, he hears him say, um... He called for Esau, his older son. He said, my son, here I am, said Esau. And Isaac said, I am now an old man and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow and go out into open country and hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me so that I may eat it and give you my blessing before I die. Now, Rebecca, mom, was listening to Jacob, listening to Isaac, who spoke to Esau. And when Esau left for the open country to hunt and come back and bring back game, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game or prepare me some tasty food so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, 
listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father the way that he likes it. And then take it to your father so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, mom, my brother's a hairy guy and I've got smooth skin. I'm a little metro. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him. Jacob actually protests. He says, mom, this, this, could, this could get me in some trouble. I would appear to be tricking him and he would bring a curse on myself. I would bring a curse on myself rather than blessing. And his mom said to him, my son, let the, the curse fall on me. Do just what I've said. Go and get them for me. And in that moment, Rebecca instills a deep belief in her son, I think. He teaches her son implicitly that the only way that you can step into what God has for you is by what? Manipulation, supplanting, usurping, being deceitful. And for us to be people who break cycles in our family lineage, we have to be honest about the cycles that are getting passed down to us. I deal with men and women every day who come in and say, I can't stop losing my temper or I can't stop managing my, mismanaging my finances. I can't stop doing these things. And we think, man, I'm trying so hard, but they're never actually addressing the root issue, which is not the temper. It's not the money. It's the fear that I'm actually alone in the universe. It's actually my job to look out for my own destiny, that if I left it up to God, I'd actually be left behind. My brother would get it. In my first year of marriage, I worked out a lot of stuff and I worked, well, I, I didn't work out a lot of stuff. I was confronted with a lot of stuff. I remember on, a, on the first romantic drive I ever took with my fiance, my now, Bride of 17 years, almost 17 years. Uh, I, just, I just asked her to be my girl. And uh, we took a drive from Northern California down to Southern California, a nice long drive. And I'm like, all right, since we're dating casually, I'd like to talk about our destiny together. I'd like to talk about our vision for our life. And uh, she said, Whoa, okay. And so I started telling her, well, one of, one of the things that's really important to me is I wanna marry my bride and never have a fight. And my wife is much, a much more grounded person than me. And she said, that is really cute, is what she said. I'm pretty sure those were her exact words. But I didn't realize it at the time that somewhere between leaving my house, leaving my house at 18, and the first thing I did when I left my house is I knew I was, I was in this place where it's like I, my life could go for the world, my life could go for God, and so I did an internship, probably very similar to the internship offered here, and this one-year really intensive program, I just went all in. I got radically devoted to Christ in my life. And there's something that happens as a single person when you're in the word and you're in community and you're in fellowship and you're in growth and you start to think, man, I'm doing pretty good. Like nobody bugs me that bad. I haven't like exploded in any. And I started to really think that even though I grew up in a household was, where rage was normal. And they used to call me the volcano when I was a teenager. And rage was, rage was what was modeled for me. I got 19, 20, 21. I got to be thinking, I worked it out. 
And so I'm 21 years old and I'm telling my, my future bride, I want to have a marriage completely free of conflict. And she said, okay, well, I want to live in the real world and that's fine. We'll, we'll figure out in, the, in between. And I remember one of the most like seductive moments of our first year of marriage. I know it was our first year of marriage because we only lived in this apartment for like 10 months. And I remember hearing my wife talk to her best friend, April, in the other room. And she's like, it's so weird. Brian never gets angry. It's like he doesn't have anger. It's so bizarre. And that washed over me like just cool water. It just felt amazing. I thought, yes, I figured it out. I've hacked rage. I'm no longer an angry person. And then if you fast forward to the, the second year of our marriage, I found my anger again. We were, we were living in Texas. We were living in Texas and uh, we were at, working at a ministry. We were both on staff. We both managed big groups of these interns, the same place where I did the internship. And we, I, I had a weird job where I worked really late at night. And so I went home for dinner. We're having dinner. It's this really tense moment. We keep escalating. We're getting more and more angry. I was convinced that I was like the most Zen person in the world, but I found out somewhere in ministry, like I'm a yeller. Sarah is not a yeller. Being in conflict, if you're a yeller and you're in conflict with a non-yeller, it makes, it actually makes you more angry. Amen, yellers, is that true? And there's this moment, there's this really tense, I didn't want to go back to work, I felt overwhelmed, I felt like I'm just screwing this up, I'm doing everything wrong, and I got really overwhelmed, and I punched a cabinet door in our house. My wife is just totally shut down, she's on, sitting on the edge of our bed, just completely overwhelmed, she's not, she can't even like look at me, and I'm so angry, I know I have to go back to ministry to lead interns, and I punch this door, and the door is like made out of cardboard, and it just shatters, and it cuts my hand, and so now, I'm, like eight and a half minutes later, I'm sitting at my desk and interns are coming in and out and my hand is bleeding. And they're like, Brian, what happened to your hand? I was like, I was attacked by a dog in the parking lot. I don't know what to say. But it was one of those moments where the facade gets shattered. You're like, I cannot lie to myself anymore. I've got a serious problem with anger. And I really, really wanted to believe that, that, was not, that I, had, I had extinguished that, I had gotten rid of that. And there was this moment where I'm sitting there and blood's coming down my hand. And my wife, I just know that my wife is probably still in tears, sitting on the edge of my bed. And there was just this inner vow. I am going to figure this out. I am not going to spend the rest of my life cultivating a home where rage has any place. Rage is not welcome in our home. Does that mean... I never raise my voice, no it doesn't. Does that mean I never lose my temper? No it doesn't, but that means that my wife and I have a lot of safety. So if, if the girls, our girls, we had a nine year, a 10 year old, and if they're getting really bratty, and, <laughs> and like I, I was like, Olivia, Olivia, o Olivia, and my, my voice goes up a register, I look at my wife and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm all right. <laughs> or no, I'm not, this is on you, you got it, I'm out. But it's a, it's a moment, and that took years, and it's a moment where I feel safe enough with my wife to say, I am allowed to say, you know what? If I keep going, I'm not gonna be in control anymore. There's this incredible, incredible moment in 2 Corinthians 
2 Corinthians 10, three through six. And actually before you throw up, before you throw up the verse, if you have it, let me read a different translation. So this is the translation a lot of us are familiar with. It says, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What that means is every thought, every feeling, every attitude, every behavior, every posture, every pretense, everything that goes through our heart and our mind, we have the power to observe it. First of all, you don't have to get so lost and so identified with your own thought life that your thought life rules you. We have the power to observe our own thought life, to observe our own emotional life. And second, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually have the power to take dominion over it. We have the power to say, you know what? I am going to lose control because I'm getting really angry. And that is outside of who I am. God did not create me to lose control. He created me to a person of self-control. And I love, love, love. I love the message version. If you, if you aren't familiar with the message translation, it's a translation by a gentleman. He's a scholar, but also a poet. Started many, many years ago, named Eugene, Eugene Peterson. And he had this vision. He believed that God was calling him to write the, a translation of the Bible that was in colloquial terms, meaning like everyday language, how you and I actually talk. And this is, this is the same passage. The world is unprincipled. It's dog-eat-dog. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have, never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation. Hello, Jacob. Hello, Rebecca. We don't base our tactics in fear. The, the weapons that we use to fight rage, to fight evil, to fight sin, to fight fear, are rooted on the foundation that God is for us. He is in us. We are empowered by him and he is before us. He has called us into greatness, right? The tools of our trade aren't for marketing and religion, but they are for demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into what? Maturity. Grown up humans. We... We protect immaturity in our lives when we deny that we got a problem. When I bury rage and I say, let's not talk about it. Let's not, let's not go up to the altar. Let's not get prayer for that again. I did that last week. It didn't work. I still lost my temper. We don't have to do that. Let's not share it with the connect group. What I am doing, I am protecting immaturity. I am protecting myself from breakthrough, from growth, from being seen and integrating and healing. And the thing that, that takes so much courage is to realize that when I resist the call of the Holy Spirit, when I feel the, the Holy Spirit calling me forward, calling me into breakthrough, and I resist it, what I'm resisting is freedom. I'm actually choosing the prison. There's this... Uh, 
there's this moment earlier in my ministry, I'll never forget. I was, we, were, we were barely married. We were married, maybe married three years. And I was really excited because a gentleman named Felix Baumgartner, who holds the world record for highest skydive. Anybody familiar with this? This happened 10 years ago in 2012, which means we were married like four years. Um, he was about to take a balloon up to the stratosphere, AKA space, and he was going to jump out of the balloon from the stratosphere, which is, um, anybody know? It's like 28 miles up. And this was happening during church. So I obviously was like, peace, I'm out. I'm skipping church. <laughs> and then my wife reminded me that morning, she's like, Brian, you're teaching Sunday school. I'm like, no. So right as we're walking out the door, I think, oh my gosh, this is, this is so exciting. I'll bring my computer. So I, I set up. I set up my computer so I can live stream Felix because it's a ministry opportunity, guys. I'm gonna inspire, I'm gonna inspire the young people. And he, it's amazing, he jumps, we hear him counting down, we hear him talking to space control. It looks like a spaceship, like he's inside a pod, you should look it up. And this pod opens and you can, it's like 2001, it's like a movie. And he steps out and he steps off and he disappears so fast. It looks as if he's been falling for 10 minutes. It's so quick because there's no atmosphere up there. There's no resistance. And you can hear him counting 200 miles an hour, 300 miles an hour, 400 miles an hour. The, here, the guy is counting. He hits 837 miles an hour, which is just for the record, faster than the speed of sound. First supersonic skydive. And then he starts to spin. And then he starts to spin faster. And then he starts to spin so quick, I can hear in the announcer's voice that this announcer is scared. And it's the first moment that it, that it occurs to me, I might be live streaming a man's death to five-year-olds. And, and I go through a legit panic. I am like trying to figure out, can I, can I figure out some way to say it's over? Like that was the whole thing. And this little boy is like, how does he stop spinning? I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for you, but Felix is alive today. It turned out, it turned out fine. But it's one of those moments where my heart rate started to race. And if, if my wife had come in in that moment and said, babe, I want to talk about this morning, I would have chomped her entire head off of her body. I wouldn't have been able to, I would have been totally offline. Why? Because my brain was in what we call a limbic state. I've had this idea actually for a long time. You tell me if this is a good idea. I want to design a bracelet that is watching your heart rate so that when, when your heart rate goes above 100 beats per minute, which for most people is, is when it's switching from parasympathetic over to sympathetic nervous system, AKA fight or flight mode. And what if it just like dinged, hey, just in case you're fighting with your spouse, stop talking, walk away, leave the room, go for a break. The doctor is in agreement with me. If there's an engineer in the house that knows how to make that happen, come talk to me because that's going to be epic. And I, yes, I've heard of the Apple Watch. Maybe it's an app. I don't know, whatever. The point being, I had a great, a great idea earlier today. I was sitting with a couple earlier today, and they, uh, they were talking about this, 
this friend of theirs, friend of the wife since she was a child, he had come to visit, they moved to the East Coast, he had come over to visit. And it was the first time, he has kids now, it was the first time she'd ever seen him like lose his temper with his kids. And she was sitting there, she was talking about how jarring it was. Like, he's a really, he's a great man, wonderful husband. He's a chaplain in the military, really good guy. Didn't go bonkers, he didn't go off the rails, but she said his daughter was kicking him and it went from stop, stop, stop. And then she, he really genuinely yelled for a second. He said, stop it. And her heart just started racing because it obviously, it took her back to her own childhood. And I was sitting there with them and I was like, what if, what if we had a bracelet that said, if I raise my voice above a certain decibel, it shocks me. It just zaps me really hard. I'm only half kidding. Because I think most of us confuse salvation and sanctification. We confuse these two events in our life. And we think if God made me a new creation, if God made me a new, if the old is gone and the new has come, aren't I supposed to be over the anger thing? Aren't I supposed to be over the, the compulsive spending thing? Aren't I supposed to be over the, the part of me that wants to like hide and lie to my spouse? Aren't I supposed to be over this thing that keeps dogging me? And we confuse the fact that we are a new creation in Christ, that standing before Christ, he sees none of our sin. He sees none of our evil. He only sees his child free from blemish because we've been washed in the sanctifying death of Christ. We confuse that with, oh, we're still carrying wounds. Our neurology is still really well conditioned to survive the conditions that we grew up in. Does that make sense? I'm gonna say it again. Your neurology, your reactivity, your anger, your spending, your lying habits are perfectly calibrated to help you survive what you've experienced. The question is, are we gonna use those tools or do we wanna trade those in for a new life? So here's the question. Let Let me just read one more thing and I want us to open this up. That... In Ephesians 4.29, there's this really strong statement. There's this moment where Paul, do you ever read something and it's like, I I wanna hear the way he would have said, I wanna hear his voice. Because it's so strong. It's like, if I think if Paul was saying this, if he was standing on stage, I think he would have been crying out. And he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Only do not let any. I think one of the ways that we rob the gospel, we rob the world from getting to see who Christ is, is because we allow the bar to be way, way, way too low. That in our fear, we get saved. Maybe we go through life-changing deliverance ministry. Maybe we go through some incredible discipleship. Maybe we get mentored and this thing keeps dogging us. So instead of saying, 
oh, there's some training, there's some care, there's some healing I haven't done yet. I've got to go bring this before the right person. I've got to go let myself bring this into the light with the right support system and get healed. We say, this must be hopeless. And we keep it behind the door and we stop trying to work on it. We stop trying to let people know because we're losing hope. I think what Paul's saying is, we got to raise the bar, guys. That not only for you, because God wants your house to be a house of peace. He wants your home, your family, he wants your kids to grow up in a place where they feel calm, they feel safe. Their nervous system is turned off because they are happy, they're joyful, they feel seen, they feel belonging. They want that to be their normal, but also because your family, that is the hope of the world. That is the gospel. I believe the family unit, you know, the church is in the middle of a series called The Future is Family. The family unit is not just the chosen vehicle, God's favorite vehicle for our sanctification because we only ever get wounded in relationship and we only ever heal in relationship. That God designed, he wants your family to be an incubator of healing. He also wants the world to see that incubator and to see there's something undeniable going on in that home. I've never seen a dad love their kids that way. I've never seen kids respond that way. I've never seen them be risk takers and bold and courageous. How does a 14 year old go off and do that? Because she knows that she's got this steady landing place where she can risk from. Does that make sense? So I wanna shut up and I wanna invite you guys to ask yourself, where is the Lord calling me up? There's an invitation where he's saying, I want more for you. Let me just pray. I'm gonna seal this time, I'll hand it over to Dr. Matt. But there's this really great verse in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. It says, do you not know that all in a race, that in a race, all runners run, but only one runner gets a prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. And I, I, I throw that in here right at the end because there's something really powerful about the posture he's, he's, he's challenging us to have. See, a lot of times I think when, we're, when we're, we're looking for breakthrough and we're looking for healing and we're looking for the next stage, we have a try mentality. We have like, oh, maybe I'm gonna give it my, I'm gonna, and then we go back and we sin again and we lose our temper again and then, oh, maybe I didn't really mean it. And what he's saying is you need a train mentality. You need to think of this as, no, rage doesn't integrate overnight. Rage integrates when in moments of activation, when in moments of fear, moments of overwhelm, I feel safe there. I get seen there. I get healed and cured and, and an arm around me in that moment again and again and again. And then what happens is over time, your brain stops coding the threat. Your brain stops saying, hey, we need the rage tool. It starts saying, we can handle this because we know we're safe. We've got to keep showing up. Amen. God, I thank you for nights like tonight where you call us forward and you call us up. I thank you that you would never settle for anything but your shalom in our house. 
that you want our homes and our families to be an experience of the kingdom of God now, not someday after we die, today in this place, that that would be a beacon. I will never forget, Pastor Jurgen telling me that when he opened up this campus, everybody was like, you're gonna sell the other one, right? Why would I sell it? We've got an altar for God right down the road from another altar. For, why would we close one that our home would be an altar where people walk in and they can feel the love and the power of God on earth? Lord, we want nothing less. God, give us the courage to face our own fear, the courage to face our own stock cycles, and the courage to respond to you and surrender to you because that's all it will ever take. We pray this in your son's name. Come on, can we give it up for Brian Ricewig? The gift of teaching and ministering on his life is amazing. You know, we're going to wrap up in a minute, but I want to pray for some people. We're also going to open up the altar. The one thing I love about this church got to remember, I always wasn't a pastor in this church. I just got healed in this church. And I always loved Jesus. I just didn't know I could be real in front of other Christians. Pastor Sammy, are we doing your own altar call there? Let's go. You know why? It's because we can be real in here. And we can let you know that you don't have to pretend everything's okay. That you can let people in your world, even if it's messy. See, I never had that before. My mom would hit me in church and tell me to sit up straighter. And my dad would tell me, don't cuss, son, or you're in deep trouble later. Hey, don't get kicked out of youth group. Otherwise, taking your car away. It's always this kind of like thing that I just was crying out. So I acted out when I left home and caused a lot of wounds probably for a lot of other people. But see, I came to this church I sat down with a pastor at an island's burger joint and I literally only came to that first service because I thought he was full of it. So I actually just had to come see how much a liar he was because there's no way this pastor could be that cool. I even snuck some shocking on there to see if he'd tell me not to come. And I didn't care at this point because I had no vested interest in who he was. So I was just telling him what total tool bag I was, pretty much. And you know what he did? Oh, then you're going to love church. I'm like, yeah, I doubt that. I'll see you on Sunday. But let me tell you, it wrecked my life. Because you know what he did when I walked in? He ran up and gave me a hug, said he was so glad that I was there. Second week, he's prophesying over me wrecked me he always showed up for me and prayed for me finally like well when he does an altar call I'm going to go up there when he hears about what I'm about to confess he'll ask me not to come back next week <laughs> you know what he said he says God, God, God's got you you're in the right house and then he put me on the parking team He like entrusted, and you think it's funny, but I was like, he was giving me something to do for the house of God. Um, and I told him, I said, dude, I'm a wreck. You don't want to put me on any team. And he goes, nah, that's where God shows up. And I want to tell you that 
16 years later, I'm standing before you a healed man, a better father, a better human being because I had a pastor that loved me, pastor that stood for me, pastor that believed in me. I'm telling you, we don't go hire pastors. We raise them up, heal them, and release them. Every single campus, I can tell you, I know. So I want to tell you, don't ever let shame hold you down from the altar. Don't ever let us, you ever have to think that we think your family has to be perfect for you to serve on a team, be a part of the kingdom, doing God's work. We know we're all in progress, every single one of us. And I refused when I got ordained. I said, are you sure you want to do that, you know? Are you sure you want to do that? It's like, yeah, that's what I need. I want some real Christians up in this house and I want some real people that are gonna deal with real issues and not afraid to get dirty. Matter of fact, I want the ones that run to the altar. If they need prayer, they run to the altar. One of my proudest moments when I had my own worship leader one night jump off and say, oh, well, there went worship, but they were on the front row getting prayer, healing, crying, holding their husband's hand and stuff was getting messy on the front row. That's because I've watched my pastor at pastor's conferences run to the front row to receive prayer. Don't let the devil get in your ear pretending we don't need help, pretending that we don't need a word from the Lord, pretending we don't need to be healed on the inside. You know how we can have rule number two? Have fun. It's because we're going to be the same person on Sunday as we are Monday, Tuesday, and we're going to let God get in the middle of our stuff, get in the middle of our marriage, even if it's messy. We're going to get and talk about real issues. So listen, if you need prayer tonight, I say all that to say, don't walk in the same way, don't walk out the same way you walked in. If you need prayer tonight, I'm after my ministry team. You guys can come up right now, but with every head bowed and every eyes closed, listen, if you've never given your life, surrendered it to Jesus. He's the only way. Eternity's on the line. Your soul is worth fighting for. God's sin is the only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And my grandma just passed away, 96 years old. And you know what? I was saying, thank you, Lord, because I know she woke up in heaven in a better place. It's not a theory. She loved the Lord, and I know where she's at. So I have total peace. I want that same peace beyond all understanding, you to have that security, that assurance. If that's you tonight, just raise your hand so I can pray for you. If you want Jesus in your heart, or maybe you once walked with Jesus, thank you, I see your hand. Hands up already, all over the place. Thank you, I see your hand, sir. That's amazing. Thank you for being bold. Thank you. Listen, let's all stand to our feet. Here's the deal. Raising your hand doesn't get you to heaven. So if I didn't give you enough time, I apologize. I'm just way over. But here's the truth. You can say this prayer. That's the deal that seals it. God knows your heart. So we're going to say this simple prayer together. When you come down to receive prayer, I have John over here. I have a whole ministry team, but I also have a whole response team that wants to pray for you. We want to give you a Bible. We want to give you a book called Following Jesus. We want to sow into you to help you on your walk and disciple you and love you and teach you and give you the ways so you can live a victorious life. How many are you excited about that? Yeah? Okay, good. Good. And then the only rule that I have is... Now that you've given your life to Jesus, just make this inner vow. I promise, Dr. Matt, I won't get weird. So anything I'm saying. 
Don't get weird. No weird Christians throwing Bibles at people, okay? Don't forget where we came from. I remind myself all the time. But let's say this prayer. You ready? All of us together, let's say it. Ready? Come on. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for my sins. I'm forgiven. And I ask for forgiveness. I repent tonight. And I ask you to equip me and show me how good my life can be. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.